If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I just want to lift up two verses to you uh, this morning by way of study as we continue in our series next, figuring out what God wants for my life. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The guy who wrote this, his name is Paul, and Paul says these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, verse 2, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, I love it, this is the punchline, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. According to the Bureau of Standards in Washington, this agency actually tells us that based on their research that a a thick fog canvassing seven city blocks going about a hundred feet deep is actually composed of a little less than a glass of water. Give that to you again. According to the Bureau of Standards in Washington, their research reveals that a thick fog canvassing seven blocks to a depth of about a hundred feet is composed of a little less than a glass of water. The moral is, little things can impair vision. Little things can impede clarity. In this room, there's probably people from every walk of faith. I I would venture to guess most of us in this room would call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe within that, some of you maybe grew up in the church. Um, Maybe you were like me. Every time the doors of the church were open, we were there. Uh, Some of y'all got uh, got baptized. You can't even remember it. You were so young. You were fresh out the womb, it seemed like, and they sprinkled some water on you or poured it on you or dunked it on you, and based upon how bad you were, determined how long they left you under. So... uh, Um, You know, some of us grew up in the church. Others of us, you're here today, and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe this is your first time in church, and we've got everything in between. But but, but, but here's here's the deal. Um, I don't care where you are on the faith continuum. There's some universal questions just, just as people leasing time on God's green earth. We just tend to ask ourselves. And one of the questions that all of humanity just asks from time to time in their journey here on earth is, what's next? What's next? What do I I need to do with my life? We've all asked that question, first of all, as it relates to purpose. It's been said that the two uh, greatest, most significant days in our lives are the day in which we were born and the day in which we figure out why we were born. We've all wrestled with the question, why am I here? What's my purpose? What's my calling? What, what, why am I here? You're, you're asking that question and embedded in the question is what's next? I alluded to this at the altar call. Uh, there's a difference between a job and a vocation. Vocation is from the Latin vocatio, which means calling. And the tragedy of so many people is we have jobs, but not vocations. 
We're not really walking in a sense of calling, sense of purpose, a sense of destiny. So we're asking that question, some of us, on our jobs right now. What's next? Graduating high school students, or maybe you're going into the pivotal year of your 11th grade year, and you're, you're going, man, this, this thing's ending soon, and time goes by, fl- by fast. I know. It seems like 20 years from now, you'll be, it'll go by real quick. You'll be at your high school reunion, and it just goes by fast. And maybe you're beginning to ponder the question, what school do I go to and what universities do I apply to? And once you get in, you'll ask the question of next, what's my major? In fact, 80% of all college students change their major at least one time. Some of y'all are like, ooh, I'm more than normal. Yes, you are. And, and you're asking the question of what's next. You're in that relationship with that individual and you've been dating for a while and you're asking what's what's next? Do we break up or do we do we take it to another level? What is next? You're married and maybe you're you're asking that question as it relates to kids and maybe you've you've even struggled with having kids and do we adopt? Do we do in vitro? What's next? Or maybe you're going, you know, we've, we've got some kids and I'm ready to have some more. It's typically the husband who's ready to have some more because we ain't got to deal with the labor part. And the wife's like, no, no, I'm tapping out. Our quiver is full. Uh, but you're asking the question of next. On and on the scenarios go. Now embedded in the very question of next is, is the idea, the concept that the reason why we're asking that question is because we're just unclear on some things. There's, there's, there's the fog. We, we, we can't seem to see. We, we lack clarity. Now, I want you to tell the truth, followers of Jesus. Don't get super spiritual on me. Some of us know what it's like to ask and ask and ask and pray and pray and pray. God, I need you to speak into this. I'm inviting you to speak into this. And, and I, I don't know about you, but God, at least with me and most Christians, he doesn't speak all the time, it seems like. Now, now, if he speaks all the time for you, if you bat a thousand in that category, um, I'm resigning my post as pastor because you're more spiritual than me. But, but God doesn't speak all the time, it seems like. And there's this fog. What am I supposed to do here? Last week, we said that, that, that God is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, we walked through that text. And he uses two metaphors, one of the door, the door represents salvation, but once we get into the door, once we get into the sheepfold, we now have a shepherd, and he says, my, my sheep know my voice. So, so one of the marks of being genuine followers of Jesus is God speaks to us, and the primary means in which he speaks to us is from his word. Today, I want to I take it a step further in our series, and I want to talk about, as we're trying to figure out what's next, as we're trying to discern the will of God, I want to talk about positioning ourselves for clarity. See, God doesn't have a speech impediment. God doesn't have a speaking problem. We have a hearing problem. So, so how do we position ourselves for clarity? Now, I want to be careful here because the very nature of faith means that that we walk by faith, not by sight. Oftentimes, God will give you enough to see, maybe a block or two, but God doesn't always give us a pre-flight itinerary. God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, I want you to pack your bags. Abram says, well, God, where are we going? Just pack your bags. I'll tell you on the way. God doesn't steer parked cars. 
So we, we just have to take steps of movement, and as we're taking those steps, then God progressively gives us more and more and more and more. Now, the punchline to our text, how many people have heard Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 preach before in their lives? I want to tell you, I've, I've heard it probably dozens of times in my own life. I want to tell you that most of the times Romans 12, 1 through 2, it's just, it's, it's preached wrong because we get so lost in the parts of Romans 12, 1 and 2 that we forget the punchline. Here's the punchline. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here it is. That, that, that by testing you may, here it is, discern what is the will of God. The punchline to our text is Paul is saying, if you do these three things, you will be positioned to hear God speak to you. The problem is we get lost in the three things and we forget the punchline. God's saying, look, I want to speak to you. There's, I did not create you and then leave it up to you to figure it out on your own. I've created you. And it's as if God's saying, how can I hold you accountable to things I never spoke to you about? So I've created you. I don't want you to be in the dark. I want you to have clarity. I want you to walk in all that I have ordained for you. But you've got to learn how to position yourself to hear my voice. See, most of us, when it comes to the will of God, we have it wrong. We're going about our lives, a little bit of Jesus over here, going about our lives, sprinkle a little bit of Jesus over here, going about our lives, a little bit of Jesus. Then all of a sudden, something hits, a crisis happens, and we pull the emergency brake. Everything stops. We go into fasting and prayer. God, speak, 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 speak. When Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, no, the voice of God is really progressive. It's daily. And if you would do these things every day, you're going to hear from me every day. I believe that. This is the word of God speaking to us. Now, what do we need to do? You ask good questions at 11.03 on Sunday morning. Paul begins, verse 1, he says, I appeal, I appeal to you. Paul is writing in a language called Greek. He's not writing in English. Uh, in the Greek, that phrase, I appeal, is actually one Greek word, parakaleo. Parakaleo means to call to one side, to come alongside of. And I want you to learn to read your Bible, not just in its historical context, but in its emotional context. Whenever you see parakaleo in the Bible, most of the times there's a sense of urgency, Paul is saying, I, look at me. I, I want to I appeal to you on some things. We're talking about the will of God. Stop playing solitaire on your iPhone. Listen to me. I, I, I want to I appeal to you on some things. It's the same word, by the way, Paul used in the book of Acts when, when he, he appealed to the authorities to hear his case to let him out of jail. I promise you, when he made his appeal, he wasn't like, hey, guys, you know, can you, you know, maybe give me some attention? No, anyway, I need to talk to you. It's the same way that a parent refers to a child when they're in that toddler stage and maybe they're about to put their finger in the socket or go across a busy street. Hey, stop. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, 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 therefore. Kenan made mention when I was training him on preaching. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, we all learn this, this simple grammatical rule. Always ask, what is it there for? 
I suggest to you this is the most significant therefore in all of the scriptures, maybe in all of literary history. Because this therefore, when Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, 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 it looks back to all of what he just said in chapters 1 through 11. Now, you need to fasten your seatbelts. I've got to give you this context or you will have no clue what God's going to say to us about the will of God. If there's one word that sums up the book of Romans, it is the word gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those that believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel, Greek word, euangelion, which simply means good news. It is good news. But we can't understand the good news until we first hear the bad news about our human condition. And that is a word that you don't like to hear. It's a word called sin sin. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul gives us bad news. He begins the book on a very ominous note. Chapter 1, he deals with the Gentiles and the problem of sin. In fact, he really reaches back, you won't like this, and he talks about what happens to Gentiles who never hear the name Jesus yet die in their sins. He's imagining some Gentiles in a third world country who've never had a missionary come there, who've never read the scriptures, and he's anticipating the question, what happens to them? They never hear a sermon preached. They they never hear the name Jesus. What happens to them? Well, Paul says they stand condemned because they have received something called general revelation. If you want to know about general revelation, read Psalm chapter 19, the opening six verses, when the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, God has wired just about all of us with the mental capacity to be able to look at creation, to be able to peer over the Grand Canyon, to look at Tabletop Mountain in Cape Town, to be able to look at Niagara Falls or the crystal green waters of the Caribbean and go, you know what? That didn't just evolve. Even secular scientists, I I read one secular scientist who doesn't claim to know Jesus Christ. They they call it, they won't call it God, they they subscribe to something called intelligent design. So what they say is, the latest probability, they say the probability that this earth evolved with no oversight from an intelligent designer... That's about as equal to you taking a bag full of letters and randomly throwing it out and you get a Shakespearean play. So what Paul is saying in Romans 1, all the Gentiles, all they have to do is to be able to look at creation and use creation as a means to worship the creator, to look at a brown cow eating green grass, producing white milk, living in a red barn and go, this just didn't happen. And if they would just use creation as a means to worship the creator, all would be well. But in Romans 1, he says the problem is they use creation and they worship the creation, not the creator. So that in Romans 1, really the only person who gets a pass are those who don't have the mental capacity to connect the dots. Now in Romans chapter 2, Paul imagines the Jews going, yeah, that's right, Paul, you get them Gentiles. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says to the Gentiles in so many words, slow your roll. Because if the truth be told, Jews, you stand even more so condemned. Because not only did you get general revelation, but God so smiled on you that you got something called special revelation. That is the word of God. 
that God manifested himself to you, not just through creation, but through his written word. But instead of using his word as a means to connect to your creator, you now use it for a stumbling block towards hypocrisy. That's why in Romans 2, he asks a list of rhetorical questions. Tell me something. You who teach people not to steal, do you not steal yourselves? You who teach people not to lie, do you not lie yourselves? And then in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he concludes his arguments, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. From the preacher to the last person at the last uh, seat in the balcony and everyone in between, all of us up in here, up in here have fallen short. We are all sinners. And yet, if the book ended at the end of chapter 3, this would be a dark, ominous book. But in chapter 4, he now gives us a ray of sunlight. He turns to the issue of salvation. And the front end of salvation is what Paul is concerned about in chapter 4. It is an aspect of salvation called justification. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And he reaches back to Genesis 15 and uses as an example for justification Abraham. He says, Abraham simply believed God and it was accredited unto him as righteousness. He didn't build a synagogue first. He didn't go to synagogue X amount of times first. He didn't sit in a small group first. He just simply believed God and God saved him. Saved him by grace through faith. In fact, what I love about about Abraham, in Genesis 15, he gets saved. But a couple chapters later, we see this joker lying over and over and over again. God knew before he saved Abraham that Abraham was a liar. God does not wait for you and I to get our stuff together before he saves us. But the beauty of salvation, as Tim Keller says, is God sees us as is, accepts us as is, loves us as is, and by his grace saves us as is, yet never leaves us as is. That we serve a God who says, come as you are. Now in chapter 5, Paul gives us more hope. He says in chapter 5 that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and infected all. But conversely, righteousness has entered the world through one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and is available to all. We call that grace. But now in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul now asks a rhetorical question in which he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. This is a problem some Christians have. Well, if you're telling me everything I've ever done, am doing, and will ever do, be paid for. If you're telling me God gave me a credit card with no limit, I might as well live it up. Paul says, well, you don't understand grace. Grace is not license to sin. It is an impetus to holiness. Now in Romans chapter 7, Paul gets really autobiographical. He gets real Romans chapter 7, he says, you know what? I'm a little frustrated because sometimes I see myself doing the very thing I don't want to do, sin. Then in deep pain, he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, one translation says, from this body of death. Body of death. We don't understand that. Back in Paul's day, the Romans, if they convicted you of murder, one of your possible punishments was to have strapped to your body the dead, decaying, stinking corpse of the person you had killed. You had to walk throughout the whole Roman Empire with this dead, decaying, stinking corpse of the person you had killed, all up and down El Camino Real. (laughs) 
getting popcorn at Lozano's car wash with the dead, decaying, stinking corpse. Paul likens sin to a dead, decaying, stinking corpse he just can't shake. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm ready to get on with it. Now in chapter 8, verse 1, he gives us some hope. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the end of chapter 8, Paul now puts down his pen and he's thinking back to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Many of them haven't said yes to Jesus yet. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he bears his heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters. In chapter 9, he says, oh, that I would be accursed. He says, if me going to hell means the salvation of my ethnically Jewish brothers and sisters, friends, then send me to hell. Chapter 10, and we love these verses, but remember, in its proper theological context, he's talking to the Jews. Chapter 10, he says, they just don't seem to get it. If they would confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts, Christ Jesus as Lord, they would be saved. Chapter 11, Paul puts down the pen, reflects on all in which he's just said. Now he writes these words, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 11. Will you look at it with me? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you. Therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that we had sinned and fallen short, but God has justified us by grace through faith. Therefore. In light of the fact that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and infected all, but now righteousness has come through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and is available to all, therefore, in light of the fact that we've got grace, therefore, he says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, watch it now, by the mercies of God, what are the mercies of God? It is everything Paul has just written about what God has done for us in chapters 1 through 11. So, so that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is not how we work for the mercies of God. It is how we respond to what God has already done. So let me ask you a question. Suppose we went out to dinner, and when the check came, I, I paid for it, covered your dinner. How would you respond? You'd say thank you and keep it moving. Can I ask you another question? Suppose I heard that you'd gotten in a financial bind and you couldn't pay your cell phone bill, and I, I paid for your cell phone bill, and you find out, found out about it, how would you respond? You would say thank you and probably write me a little thank you note. Let me ask you another question. Suppose I came to you and I said that God has blessed my wife and I, hypothetical situation, God has blessed my wife and I, and we feel led to pay off your mortgage. 
how would you respond? Again, that's hypothetical. <laughs> how would you respond? You wouldn't just say thank you and you wouldn't just write the note. But if I came to you a couple weeks after doing that and I said, hey, my wife and I want to catch a date. Do you mind watching our kids? You would do so with joyful delight. Why? Because our sense of gratitude is to expand as it relates to the bill that was covered. Here is God. He didn't just pay off a 30-year debt. He didn't just buy you dinner, though he puts food on your table. And he didn't just pay off your bill. But here is God who saw a debt you could never pay, who saw us absolutely hopeless and helpless by the side of the road, and he paid for it not with his own money, but with the blood of his only son. And I think God gets offended where five o'clock on Sunday afternoons, we give Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green more praise. Then we do a God who gave his son. We ought to just right now give God a praise break for everything that he has done for us. He has paid off our debts. Now, the rest of our text, Paul says, you can do more than clap. If you really want to say thank you, do these three things. And if you do these three things, Paul says, you will be positioned to hear from God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is not legalistic. It is not doing these things to earn God's mercies. It is responding to them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, watch it, to present, hear it now, your bodies. And this messes me up. Of all the things Paul could have said, why bodies? Why not your soul? Why not your emotions? Why not your intellect? Why, why not your will? Paul is writing in a day and age in which the Romans and the Greeks were adopting to something called Gnosticism. I don't have time to get into all that, but Gnosticism was a philosophical belief that pretty much says that the material or the body was evil and non-consequential and the spirit, the immaterial, was good. That's why you had some Gnostic believers who denied the humanity of Jesus. They couldn't comprehend God coming in flesh. Paul strikes a death knell to that belief. In our text, he says, God wants your bodies. Why? Because your body houses everything. Your body is what the soul does in the world. Your emotions have no outlet without the body. Your intellect has no outlet without the body. Your will has no outlet without the body. Whoever has the body has it all. 
So he says, I want you in responding to the mercies of God, step one in positioning yourself for clarity is to present, present your body as a living sacrifice. My pastor, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer says this, that that word present is a technical temple term. It was used of a precise moment of the Jew who would present his sacrifice to the priest. He would take this lamb, this lamb maybe he had grown close with, maybe as the shepherd, and he takes this lamb as a sacrifice. It was going to be killed, and he presents it to the priest, but he only presents it at that precise moment, not when his hands are still on it, but he only presented it when he takes his hand off of it and relinquishes full control to the priest. Likewise, how do we position ourselves to hear from God? It is when we take our hands off of our lives. And we say, God, you are not my administrative assistant. You do not exist to help me pull off my dreams. God, you are the CEO of my life. You call the shots. I am your employee. We are not peers. God, I, I relinquish control. And I love it. He uses an oxymoronic phrase, living, living sacrifices. The problem with living sacrifices is they often crawl off the altar. The story is told the time in which a chicken and pig were walking down the street one day. Chicken and pig were walking down the street, and they passed a grocery store. Maybe it was a Safeway. And they saw that the proprietor of the grocery store had put a sign posting these words. Need more bacon and eggs. Chicken elbows the pig and says, hey, why don't we make a donation? The pig says, that ain't a good look for me, bruh. So you can drop off a few eggs and keep it moving. But for me to make a bacon donation costs me my life. The problem with the church is we got too many Christians living like chickens instead of dying like pigs. God doesn't want your donations. God ain't impressed with your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God ain't impressed by the time in which you serve. You should serve. But if you think all that, the Chris, that's the Christian life, making some donations, you are living like a chicken when God has called you to die like a pig. And the way you die is you die to your will, you die to yourself, and it's at that moment of dying daily. Well, God says, okay, now you're ready to hear from me. Some of you all, you've heard from God. You just ain't going to do it because it ain't aligning with your will. You're living like a chicken. Are you ready to die like a pig? Next, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, parenthetically. I, I can't even really touch this, which is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, God's saying, you know what? I got a problem with some of you because you sing stuff you don't do. God says, you want to talk about real worship? See, I haven't experienced this in abundant life, although I'm scared to ask. I've worked at churches where people on their way into the church to worship God have cussed out the parking lot attendant. I, I know we don't do that here in California. I, I, know, I know we don't do that here. 
But Paul says, here's real worship. Presenting your bodies as living. And now I love what he says. And do not be conformed, conformed, conformed to this world. I love what J.B. Phillips says in his paraphrase. Don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. Another translation says, don't wear the world's fashions. Speaking figuratively. What is the world? When Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, he uses the Greek word aeon, which is the idea of age. Whenever this word is used in the New Testament, predominantly, it is used figuratively and not literally. It is used figuratively to speak of a system that is opposed to the agenda of God. God is saying you can't, he's not saying you can't love the beach. He's not saying you can't love, you know, sunsets. He's not saying you can't love mountaintops. He's he's not saying you can't love that stuff. He's just saying, don't love the systems in the world that run counter to my agenda. In fact, if you want to hear more about this, read John 15, where Jesus juxtaposes the world with the kingdom of God. And, and he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Here is John taking notes. And later on, he would unpack this in his epistle where he says, where he says love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. James would unpack it even further when he would say, don't you understand that friendship with this system, with this world is enmity towards God? Just got to be honest with you. I, I got finished working out this morning, and I'm walking out about six, about five something in the morning. Um, I work out at the 24-hour fitness right there off Capitol Expressway, and and I'm 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 walking out, and the sun is just peeking its head over the the mountains. I lived in Memphis for years. We ain't got those in Memphis, but it's 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 just unbelievably beautiful here, and the palm trees and the mountains and all that stuff. And I just sense the Holy Spirit saying to me, "Man, enjoy it, but don't get lost in it." Can I say a word to us in the bay? Every day we have a decision to make. Will we allow the bay to squeeze us into its mold? Or we live, will, will we live different, distinct lives? I gotta tell you, when people first came to California from back east, they settled in this part of California. You know why they came here? They came here for gold. When we first came to the United States, they settled for religious leader, uh, reasons. I, I shouldn't say we as, as if black people settle for religious reasons. That's another sermon for another time. But when, when folk first came to the United States, they came here for religious reasons. They didn't come to the West Coast for religious reasons. They came to this part of the West Coast for gold. In other words, I really believe that entrenched in this part of the world is a spirit of materialism. And if you don't see that, if you don't understand it, moving here, there's something palpable at work. And if you're not careful, you will get sucked into that this life is all about trips to Napa and trips to Monterey and trips to Carmel. And you'll get sucked in and sucked in and sucked in to the point where you look like the very people you should be ministering to. Don't get sucked in. You're passing through. There's coming a moment when God will say, give me back my breath. And hopefully we'll have more to say than the amount of rounds of golf we played. You're different. You're different. You're di- enjoy, but you're different. 
I love Heathcliff Huxtable. I don't like Bill Cosby. <laughs> you know, I was in his corner the first couple ones, but we were around about seven or eight or nine. I'm like, he did something. Another storm, sermon for another time. But growing up, I love Thursday nights, man. You had the Cosby Show and Family Ties and different world. Am I by myself here? Uh, all that stuff. Um, and one of my favorite episodes of the Cosby Show was, was the episode where, 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 where Theo wanted a certain kind of shirt called a Gordon Gartrell. Anybody, 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 anybody remember the Gordon Gartrell? Is it Gordon, 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 Gordon Gartrell? I love it. I love it. Leave it up there. And his sister, he, for whatever reason, he couldn't get the Gordon Gartrell he wanted, but Denise was like, I got you. I got you. I'm going to hook you up, bro. Well, that's the hookup, all right? She makes this thing. He tries it on. Friends are downstairs, and he comes downstairs. Man, it's just a mess. Sleeves are wrong. Stitching is wrong. Collar is off. But for whatever reason, the friends are looking at him going, man, that's, that's unique. That's, that's different. And some of them are actually soliciting... Who made it? So that what's different now allows them to have a conversation which Theo, in looking different, can now go, here's the maker. Stand out. Be different. Part of the reason why I'm rushing out of here to coach my son's AAU team, I, I, I hope in the simple act of coaching, that I'm different. And listen, being different does not mean taking a 90-minute Bible study for what's supposed to be an hour-long break. Doesn't mean that you're praying all the time. We're, we're probably not going to pray together before the game. That's not typically what they do. But I hope in how I relate to them and what I say and how I act that people, I can't quite put my finger on it, but, but there's something different. I'm not being sucked in. I'm not being conformed. Listen, I, I want to speak to you because I promise you you're here. You don't know Jesus Christ, and you think life is all about Teslas, and you think life is all about houses and money. I just want you to understand, I've done a lot of funerals. I've, done, I've seen crazy stuff. Talk to me about the time in which I saw a hawk kill a dove at a funeral that I did. But anyways, I've seen crazy stuff. Here's one thing I've never seen. I've never seen a U-Haul at a cemetery. You ain't taking it with you. Brothers, when you die, if you got a life insurance policy, she's going to spend it. She might spend it on the next dude. All, all that hard work, some other roughneck dude's going to put his feet on the coffee table you paid for. <laughs> Ladies, you know I'm telling the truth. So why extend all that energy? Let's go home on this one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here's how we respond to the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and supple under God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed. He talks about committed worship. Now he's talking about a, a, a counter-cultural walk. Do not be conformed to this world. I love it. But be transformed. 
transformed. The idea of transformed is a Greek word, metamorpho, from which we get the English word metamorphosis. This isn't a little tweak here or there. It is radical transformation. I'm talking, you got saved after high school, you show up to the high school reunion, and people are taking a double take. They cannot believe it. Radical change. That's what C.S. Lewis said in a moving passage in Mere Christianity. Look, look at it with me. He says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. It's what God came to do for you. He didn't come to rearrange the furniture in your life. He came to blow up the old house and make a new house. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. He says, I want you to be transformed. So hear me. I'm doing these three things. The punchline is the will of God. Hear me. I'm responding to the mercies of God. I'm not, I'm not earning it. I'm responding to his mercies. I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice. Take my hands off my life. God, you've got me. You're the CEO. You're in charge, not me. This is a daily dying to self. God, I'm, I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I'm, I'm going to, by your grace, I'm going to stand up, but I'm going to be transformed, transformed, totally changed. Now, how am I totally changed? Because transformed into passive, in other words, it's something that happens to me, but, but what is it the result of? Here it is, by the renewing of your mind. The mind is the motherboard of the body. It's a conversation I have with my kids now. I got a 16-year-old, 14-year-old, 12-year-old, and um, I'm trying to th- get them to think through, you know, secular music. So we actually, you know, they, they've been wanting to listen to Kendrick Lamar, and uh, I'm like, okay. Um, so if, if I'm going to buy this stuff, we're going to listen to it together before I spend my money. And that shuts down a lot of stuff. Ooh, don't know if we can w- listen to Future with Dad. Um, <laughs> Oh, why not? So you, you were just on that page, and all of a sudden the preacher going to listen to it with you. Anyway, it's funny how that works. So, <laughs> so but here's the deal. I, I want my kids to be able to, to have a biblical worldview where they think through things. So, so here's what I tell them. I, I, I think the conversation for most of us parents, we, we're going down the wrong ro- road. The issue is not, can I listen to Kendrick Lamar? The issue is not, can I watch Scandal? The issue is not, I think the bigger issue is how much of it I'm, I'm digesting. Listen, I know this is a hard word, but hear it within the context of responding to the mercies of God. If we don't hear it in that way, we get legalistic. Hear it, hard word. You can't have a steady diet of Kendrick Lamar and Scandal or whatever it may be, and then all of a sudden wonder why you can't hear God speak to you. I mean, those two things don't go together. This is not don't watch secular TV or listen to secular. It's not. In fact, it's interesting. If you just do a study in the Bible, the Bible is more fixated on what you can do than what you can't do. What you can do is think about things that are lovely and pure and good, so on and so forth. But I've got to have a renewed mind. So I, I just got to be in the Word. I mean, this is every single day. I'm reading the Word every single day. I'm, I, when I'm working, I'm, I'm podcasting. I'm podcasting. Why? This is Colossians 3.16. You know what Colossians 3.16 says? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It never says don't listen to secular music. 
But if you do what the Bible says do, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, here's what you'll discover. Two things. One, my appetite for that other stuff is decreasing because now I'm eating right. And what you'll discover as I'm letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly, I don't have much margin for the other stuff. Now, I, I ain't gonna lie, you know, cardio, I, I just get bored, so I gotta have something upbeat, all right? And I won't tell you what upbeat is, but it's upbeat. <laughs> but I get off of that, and I, I podcast some stuff. Podcasts, there's great preachers. You, you gotta work really hard to not let the word of Christ dwell in us richly right now. All this stuff available, to, and here's what happens. To change. Th- this passage says, here's how change happens. Just focus on the mind. The mind, and you're going to wake up one day and go, ooh, I'm different. You cut me off on the 280, I'm going to speak to you in sign language. (laughs) That I got some good stuff in me. I at least prayed before I spoke to you in sign language. I want the band to come, and I want us to prepare for communion right now. This is daily stuff. Present your body's living sacrifice. Don't put good stuff into your mind. Now I'm daily to say. Now I'm in a position to hear. When I bought my latest car, we were still living in, uh, in, in New York. We were on our way out here. And um, salesman pleased to me about why I should buy this car is because this car is outfitted with XM rating. There's a signal on my car that connects to a signal way out. When, when he made the pitch to me, he says, it ain't activated yet. You number. Can't mess up the digits. Call this number. I dialed that exact connected me from that exact number with the signal from my car. Friends, that's salvation. When we got saved, some the quality of our life could be enhanced. He says there's a voice waiting for us way out with us. And in order for that to happen, it can't just happen any old kind of way. We have to dial an exact number whose name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who connects. But watch this. If you were to take a ride with me in my car, you would find out that there are predictable patterns when my XM satellite goes out. It's when I go under an overpass and that signal is distorted. I don't have clarity. Some of you here today, and you know Jesus Christ, but you're not having clarity because maybe you're living under the overpass of sin. It's distorting the voice of God. God is saying today, I want you to come out from under that. I want you to hear my voice. I'm speaking. You're just not in a position to hear. Others of us, you ain't dialed Jesus yet. Listen to me. 
Jesus, who knows everything it is you've ever done, are doing, and will do to break his heart. Jesus says, I know all about it, and I knew all about it when I got on a cross 2,000 years ago and died for you. And I want a relationship with you. Look, I didn't move out here to California to become the pastor of Abundant Life to offer you religion. This ain't about a system of rules and regulations and quiet times and all that. No, this is about a relationship with a living person who loves you and who knows you and who wants to, as my grandmama used to sing, walk with you and talk with you along life's narrow way. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to connect with you at the deepest levels of who you are. The same God in which it was said of Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness is the same God who says that offer is still on the table for you. It's amazing that God wants me. If you knew the stuff in my past on the History Channel that I was caught up with in, the stuff that I did, I am day 